Good morning, church. Let's uh, study the Bible. We're in John chapter 8. We'll be starting in verse 12 and reading through verse 20. I'll read it through right here, and uh, then we'll get into our study. In verse 12 of John 8, it says, Then Jesus spoke to them again, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. The Pharisees, therefore, said to him, You bear witness of yourself. Your witness is not true. Jesus answered and said to them, Even if I bear witness of myself, my witness is true, for I know where I came from and where I am going, but you do not know where I came from and where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. And yet if I do judge, my judgment is true, for I am not alone, but I am with the Father who sent me. It is also written in your law that the testimony of two men is true. I am one who bears witness of myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness of me. Then they said to him, Where is your father? Jesus answered, You know neither me nor my father. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. These words Jesus spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple. And no one laid hands on him, for his hour had not yet come. Uh, go ahead and pray with me. Jesus, we pray that, that you would reveal the father to us. Um, that uh, as we gaze on you in the scripture, um, that we would see who God is. Um, we know no one has seen him at any time, but you, Jesus, reveal him to us. So we pray that by your spirit you would do exactly that, that we would have understanding of spiritual things um, that are beyond us, that you would even surprise us with the things that you want to teach us. And give us understanding of this passage in John chapter 8. Bless your church in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, so we're coming to a, a big statement um, that Jesus makes here. And it's the second of the I am statements in the Gospel of John. In chapter 6, we saw that he said, I am the bread of life. And here he says, I am the light of the world. Now, a little reminder, uh, these are references, to, probably, to the burning bush passage where Moses meets with God. He sees a bush burning, but it's not consumed. He thinks, that's strange, I've got to go see that. And he goes there, and then God speaks to him out of, from the bush, out of the bush. And when in that passage, God tells Moses to go to Egypt and talk to Pharaoh and tell him to let my people go. And when, uh, when that happens, Moses says, um, who should I say sent me? Sorry, Lord, I didn't catch your name. Um, and God simply says, tell them I am sent you. He says, I am that I am. And Jesus references this passage of the burning bush when he argues the case for the resurrection uh, later on in, in his ministry, pointing out that God calls himself the, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And God, is, you know, these are all people who had lived and who had died hundreds of years before. Um, but Jesus says, God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when, when uh, God speaks to, to Moses out of the, book, the bush, he says, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Well, just those dead guys? No, living souls that were with God at that moment. Um, but it could be that Jesus is referencing this passage every time that he uses one of these I am statements. When God says to Moses, tell them that I am sent you, there's a bit of a blank that there that is left unfilled. You know, you say, I am what? I am, well, I am the bread of life. And here he says, I am the light of the world. In John 10, he'll say, I am the door and, and I am the good shepherd. In John 11, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. 
And in John 14, he says famously, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And finally, in John chapter 15, he says, I am the true vine. These are things that you should know about Jesus. You should memorize this list. Uh, because these are things that Jesus wants you to know about himself. These are ways that God wants you to experience him as the vine, as the door, as the resurrection. These are things that will help you relate to Jesus in prayer and in worship. These are things that will help you in your understanding of the fallen world around you that, that needs a resurrection. Um, and, and it'll help you understand the resurrected world to come and have, have hope. For, for that, and you'll begin to understand your place in the in-between. Um, so in our passage, we have this second of seven. He says, I am the light of the world. Now I want to set the scene for you here. In chapter seven, it told us what time of year it is. Uh, it's autumn. That's when the Feast of Tabernacles was. And uh, this story follows directly at the heels of the events of chapter 7. Now remember, uh, we talked last week about the woman caught in adultery and how that story is not really where it happened um, chronologically. It's not, um, it's probably not chronologically accurate. So this story is happening in conjunction with the events of chapter 7, which means it's right after the Feast of Tabernacles, the, the great day of the feast, the last day of the feast, the extra day, was when Jesus stood up in the crowd with everyone there and said, Come to me, all you who thirst. That's in John 7, verse 37. And that was a symbolic thing to say on the feast uh, on the day that he said it, because on that last day of the feast, it was a fasting day when people were going without food and without water. And it was also the, the only day of the feast that did not include that ceremony involving taking water up from the pool of Siloam and then bringing it into the temple. So Jesus in the temple says, thirsty people, on this thirsty day, I'm the water that you're missing. Well, right here, when he says, I am the light of the world, this is also an appropriate thing to say in the context, in the setting of the feast that had just ended. Remember, the Feast of Tabernacles was celebrated primarily to commemorate God's faithfulness to his people during Israel's 40 years of wandering through the wilderness. And during that time, God led them with a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Um, these were their lamps. These symbols worked their way into the annual celebration of the Feast of Tabernacles in the form of lamps. Uh, there was a lot of lamps at this Feast of Tabernacles, a lot of light, and as a reminder uh, to the people that God led them by fire by night and a cloud maybe illuminated during day, the, the day they had these special ceremonial lamps there. On the first night of the feast, the week-long feast, there was a large lamp. Uh, one old commentator calls it a chandelier. I don't really know how accurate that is. Uh, but it, it was this, this lamp, maybe more like a menorah, uh, that was in the women's court of the temple. And the people would gather for the ceremonial lighting of the lamp. And this ceremony was called the illumination of the temple. And it is in the women's court of the temple where Jesus is right now. Everywhere this ceremony is mentioned in Jewish writings, it talks about it being in the court of the women. That's where the lamp was, that's where the lamp lighting was. If the readers would have known this, it could be why we find the story of the woman caught in adultery right before this statement of the light of the world. Perhaps that's why it finds its way in where it does. But in verse 20 of uh, John chapter 8, it says, These words Jesus spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple. 
The treasury was not a separate room or building in the temple. It was just a portion of wall space with boxes uh, um, for, for offerings to be put into. All these boxes are, are lined up. They're actually trumpet shaped. They've got the big opening thing and they were called the trumpets. And you would put your money in there and your, your offerings. And that was in the court of the women. So Jesus is speaking here in the court of the women, in the, the, uh, the treasury, where there's this huge candelabra or menorah right there behind him or above him, brightening up the place. And it is in that setting where Jesus says, I'm the light. I am the light of the world. Uh, and Jesus likes to do this. He likes to, uh, to provide the setting and then say, what you see is pointing towards something. That's why he calls it the miracles, the, the signs, you know? And you see this throughout the Old Testament prophets even. God will set a scene for them. He says, what do you see? What are you seeing? What do you think it means? And then when you, what, what, when you see one thing and internalize that, God says, okay, now I am the fulfillment of that thing. I'm greater than that thing. Or I am the, the one who that thing or that scene is pointing towards. Jesus does this with the religion of uh, Judaism, which he was coming into and fulfilling. Uh, but I see that God does this in so many ways um, in, in speaking to our hearts. You know, you see the sunset or the, the mountain vista and you say, that's beautiful. But if you have ears to hear it, Christ says right after, I'm beautiful. Um, and you say, wow, this creation is wonderful. And he says, I'm the creator. I'm, I'm sure you, uh, if you're your parents, you know, you've noticed this, you've had some joys, uh, you know, in, in parenting interspersed with the, the diapers and all the other things. And, and you get that moment, that, that, that bright spark. And behind that, God is saying, I'm the parent, you're the child. Or I was a child just like this. God is always using the scene. He's always using the backdrop, whatever it is, to say something about himself. I'm the comforter. I'm the healer. So Jesus here, he says, I am the light of the world. Right after a week that was full of lamps, full of light, and all that kind of imagery that reminded the people that he had led them, that God had led them with light. The pillar of cloud that led the people of Israel through the wilderness is now fulfilled in Christ, who would lead them into the fullness of God's promises. Not only one of them, but the whole world. He's not just the light of Israel this time. He's the light of the world. And this is a, a, a bold statement. Jesus makes plenty of them. Uh, this is a, a bold statement, and in it... Um, would, would also be included, I think, as one of the many claims to deity that Jesus makes in John's Gospel that get him into so much trouble. If the I am, a capital I, capital A, capital M, I am statement wasn't enough to remind his hearers of, of the God at the burning bush, then the statement about being the light of the world, that would really draw their minds to scriptures about God himself. Psalm 27, it is very clear. It says, the Lord is my light and salvation. Jesus, who did not consider equality with God something to be grasped or stolen or something that needed to be protected in a closed fist, he's also not shy about his position. He's very open about who he is. He is the light and he is the salvation and that, you know, that the psalmist worshipped. 
It's also fitting that this statement about light comes to us in John's Gospel, where Jesus is best known as the Word of God, the Word who was with and who is God, the Word who took on flesh, who was made flesh and dwelt among us. This makes sense because the Hebrew Scripture often refers to the Word of God as the light that leads them. Think of Psalm 119, 105, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. The word is the light. Psalm 43, verse 3 says, Oh, send your light and your truth. Let them lead me. So read this verse again. It says, Then Jesus spoke to them again, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness but have the light of life. He's saying, I am the one who leads you. I'm the truth that leads you. I'm the lamp to your feet and the light to your path. I'm the living word of God. Now, you, you see, you could ask, what is it about light that Jesus is attributing to himself? Well, he's taking his cue from the feast. That he, He's saying that he's the light that will lead his people through a wilderness and eventually out of it into the promises and the riches of God. This was, would also fit with the reference to Psalm 27, that light and salvation passage. And as the word is a lamp that guides, and it is a truth that leads, so is Jesus, the light of the world, who is our salvation, who is the truth that leads us out of the wilderness and into the promised land. He is the one who leads his people out of darkness and into light. He leads us to heaven. But on the way there, until the transition from heaven to earth, we need light. Because the world is dark. We need guidance. And so Jesus says, He who follows me shall not walk in darkness. It's a long walk. But you don't have to be in the dark for this walk. This is important to realize that Jesus is not only offering access to heaven, and he is not only claiming to be the access point to heaven, but also the solution for living on this earth. Jesus is for this life. And he is telling people, just as the Israelites in the wilderness kept their eyes on that pillar of cloud or the pillar of fire, if you want to go through this wilderness of life with clarity, with direction, with light, Jesus says, keep your eyes on me. And it seems that this moment in Jesus' ministry made a strong impression on John. John who's writing this, because not only does, does he include this story in his gospel account, while none of the other gospel writers do. But he mentions light five times in his first letter to the church. First John is not a big book, um, but it mentions five times. In First John 1, 5, he says, God is light. John describes what it looks like for people to take Jesus up on his offer, what it looks like for Christians not to walk in darkness, but to have the light of life. First John 1, 7 says, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. Walking in the light of Jesus means fellowship with others within the reach of his illumination. 1 John 2 verse 9 confirms this description of light being equated with fellowship. He says, whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Light equals fellowship. And in the next verse, in, in 1 John 2 verse 10, it says, whoever loves his brother abides in the light. And when you read John chapter 8 verse 12, you see that these ideas are lifted directly from what Jesus says in, in John 8. I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Now, th this kind of bold statement 
uh, it would surely invite criticism from people who are listening closely. And the following passage is going to sound very familiar because a lot of John includes those criticisms that were levied against Jesus. Once again, we're dealing with challengers to Jesus' authority to say such outrageous things. And if you'll recall, we dealt with this at length in chapter 5 when these same people had a problem with Jesus you know, healing on the Sabbath. And, and Jesus listed all the expert witnesses in chapter 5 that could tell you about himself. Um, the first witness was himself, but he knew they would probably have a problem with that. But then he says, in addition to that, you've got John. John the Baptist bore witness of me. And then he said, well, my works bear witness of me. Look at the fruit of my ministry. Then he goes even higher and says, my father, my father bears witness of me. And then he goes on and he says, the scriptures bear witness of me. There's that famous verse that you should know. You search the scriptures for in them you think you have eternal life, but these are they that speak of me. And, and then finally he says, and Moses bears witness of me. He's your guy. He, you, you love Moses. Well, he talks about me. So there, there were a lot of character witnesses for Jesus. Lots of different voices that were affirming his identity and his value. But apparently the Pharisees weren't listening real well in chapter 5. Because here we are in chapter 8 and they're still asking the same sort of thing. And they're bringing up the same issues. Um, so, verse 13. The Pharisees therefore said to him, You bear witness of yourself. Your witness is not true. Um, now, you might remember, you know, we, we talked about this issue when we were in chapter 5 as well. Uh, true here um, really means valid. It means your witness is not valid. You can't just say this stuff about yourself and expect it to hold up in a court of law. It's not as if he, what he said was automatically false simply because it was he who said it, um, but it wasn't valid in a court of law. It didn't count. So this is the same argument they brought forth in chapter 5, and it's why Jesus listed all those other witnesses, saying, is this enough? You need two or more. I've got five. Um, because, you know, they're right. According to their law, as Jesus says in this passage, you need two or more witnesses to confirm a case. Now, in here, Jesus isn't going to list all of those witnesses. He's going to mention two. Witness number one, himself. Witness number two, his dad, God the Father. Verse 14 and 15. Jesus answered and said to them, Even if I bear witness of myself, my witness is true. For I know where I came from and where I am going. But you do not know where I come from and where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. So he acknowledged, like he said in chapter 5, yes, under normal circumstances, I get it. One person bearing witness about themselves would be suspect. But if you're the only one who's been to a certain place, you're really the only person qualified to talk about what that place is like. Jesus is qualified to speak about himself because no one else on earth had the knowledge and the experience and the heavenly wisdom that he had about himself. John 3 verse 13, Jesus says to Nicodemus, no one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is the son of man who is in heaven. When he says, I am the light of the world, he's talking about heavenly realities, the world, the cosmos. This means all of humanity throughout time and space and all of history. And he claims that he is the light, the illuminator, the guide, the savior, the truth to all of the world, in all of these centuries, in all times, in all places, to all people. And this kind of statement has to come from a place of knowledge that is beyond this world. 
So when Jesus says, my witness is true because I know where I came from, he's saying this truth about my person and my work and my ministry, it's a truth that has been established at my old place. The place where I was before I came here. I'm speaking heavenly truths. And when he says, I know where I'm going, he's saying, and I, I can say I'm the light of the world because I've seen what's next. I've had the illumination to see the future, to see what's coming, and, and to see what's above and what's beyond. I sit on a throne. I come on a horse with a sword. And I've, got, I, I've been in timeless eternity. I can say there is no God besides me. And I can see the countless masses of every tribe, tongue, and nation. And I can say with authority and confidence that there is no light besides my light. And I can say with confidence that there is not part of the world that I am unable to illuminate. So yes, under normal circumstances, you might want a second opinion. But really, if you want to know what's on the other side of the fence, you should trust the tallest person. And Jesus reminds them, not only have they have not only have I, Jesus, not only have as Jesus seen over the, the fence, but you guys, you're, you're all too short to even get a glimpse. You do not know where I come from and where I'm going. He just says it plain. You don't know what you're talking about. To see where Jesus was would require a knowledge of eternity past. To understand where Jesus was going, you know, would require a vision of eternity future. They just don't have that kind of perspective which leaves them with the earthly, the carnal, the narrow. And that's what Jesus says in verse 15. He says, you judge according to the flesh. Because that's all you have. You don't have spiritual understanding. You don't have spiritual illumination. You guys don't have spiritual anointing. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Now the word flesh there, we've talked about, it means more than just the body. The word for body in Greek is soma. And if Jesus wanted to say, you judge by what you see, or see and by what you hear and by what you experience in the physical world, the natural realm, he might have used that word soma, the body. But he uses the more crude word, sarks, which carries the idea of corruption and sin with it. This is the word that Paul would later use when he wants to contrast the words flesh and spirit. And when, so when Jesus says, you judge according to the flesh, He's saying, you judge according to your fallen sinful nature. As we saw in the last chapter, they, they weren't really about honest investigation, were they? They weren't curious. They weren't thirsty. They weren't observing the facts and then drawing conclusions. They were judging according to their flesh, what their sinful natures dictated. They are not unbiased reporters here. And as we've seen, there's two many meanings to the word judge. There's the idea of discerning. Knowing right from wrong, good from evil, up from down, cold from hot. That's judging. That's one way to judge. And then there's the idea of condemning, pronouncing judgment with final authority. And I believe Jesus is using this word in the, in the second way. This is the second kind of judging. They had already judged Jesus in their minds. They didn't like him. They had decided to kill him. Nicodemus in chapter 6 said, Are we a people who judges a person without hearing him? And then they get all angry with Nicodemus and they call him a Galilean, which I guess was just the worst kind of schoolyard insult that they could think of on the spot. But Jesus says, You judge, you condemn according to your sinful nature, the, the wicked proclivities of your heart, the desires of your sin. That's how you judge. You judge and condemn 
according to the flesh. I condemn no one. Now that needs some explanation, doesn't it? Jesus says, I judge no one. And in the two ways to understand judging, I think it makes the most sense, again, to say condemn there. Since we know that Jesus definitely discerns, he's doing it right now while talking to these guys. He's putting them firmly on one side of the line with himself on the other side of the line. Jesus discerns between good and evil. But there's still a problem because if we're to understand this word as condemn, well, we know that Jesus does judge that way too. He's already said in the Gospel of John, the Father has entrusted all judgment to the Son. This is definitely something that Jesus does. And not just the discerning kind of judgment, but passing sentence and that kind of judging too. So what does Jesus mean here where he says, you judge or condemn according to the flesh, I judge no one. I think what he's doing is he's echoing what he said in John 3 verse 17. He says, for God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world that the world through him might be saved. The purpose of Christ's first coming was one of judgment. It was not one of condemnation. He had come to set captives free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's liberty. That's what he was all about. And it's, it's true that he's coming again and he's coming to judge. But what Jesus is telling these Pharisees, his enemies right now, is he says, I'm not condemning you and I'm not condemning anyone. I'm I'm not doing that yet. Now, can you believe that? I mean, of course we know that Jesus loves the little children and the brokenhearted and the lowly, and, but over and over and over again, we see that Jesus is very rough with the religious elite and with the mighty and with the powerful. But Jesus does not engage, um, engage with these people with their level of condemnation. They see Jesus and they don't like him, so they murder him. Jesus says, I'm not here to condemn you. I have the authority to, but that's not what I'm doing. I condemn no one. And we do see that Jesus doesn't relate to these kinds of people the same way that he encounters tax collectors and prostitutes and sinners and widows and orphans and children. But when we see that he is tough with them, tough with the Pharisees and the scribes, we can't assume that he is being unloving to them. That's not the right way to read this. We, we can't see that when Jesus encounters the world, the whole world, including the rich and the powerful and the manipulative Pharisees that want to kill him, his purpose is the same. And his purpose is John 3.17. It's still not one of con condemnation. He says, I came to the world that the world might be saved. This is the contrast between the Pharisees and Jesus. They had already judged. They had prejudged. And they had condemned Jesus according to their own sinful desires. Jesus looked back at them, the ones who wanted to kill him, and didn't judge a single one of them. He did not condemn a single one of them. I mean, we know this because they continued to talk to him, and he allowed them to continue living. He didn't condemn any of them. He didn't come for that. He came to save them. And now it's a truth that we can't avoid, that condemnation is real and it happens. And if you go... On from John 3, John 3.16, you know, John 3.17, we read. And then if you read John 3.18, you read, He who believes in him is not condemned. But he who does not believe is condemned already. Because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And you can read on and see the condition of these men who had been, who are coming against Jesus. They're, they're condemned already. You see that their condemnation was self-imposed. But we know from the rest of the book that there will be a time when judgment, final judgment, 
will be meted out by God on the throne. And Jesus sort of hints at that too. And he says, and yet if I do judge. Now guys, be, be aware. Judgment's coming. I'm not here to judge you. I judge no one. But if I do judge, my judgment is true. For I'm not alone. But I'm with the Father who sent me. It is also written in your law that the testimony of two men is true. I am one who bears witness of myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness of me. Jesus says, I have the backing of my Father, both in judgment, which, you know, if I eventually do that, and also in my uh, identity that I'm claiming. I am the light of the world. Th these are your two or more witnesses. Me and my Father have seen these things to be true. And all of this should sound familiar, because all of this has been said before. Jesus has, has brought out the witnesses to his character, and he has repeatedly referenced his Father as the authority in his ministry. And it was this making himself equal with God through claims to sonship that made the Jews want to kill him. So Jesus doesn't back down. He brings up the topic again, and he says, It's my Father who testifies of me. And it's my Father who will entrust me with the, the judgment that will be necessary. And in saying, the Father who sent me bears witness of me, Jesus is describing the action of an ambassador. When an ambassador comes to proclaim a message from his kingdom, his credentials are from the king. His credentials are from the one who sent him. The king doesn't have to come with him and say, hey, listen to this guy. The fact that the king sent the messenger gives weight and authority, uh, gives weight to the authority of the messenger. So Jesus says, the fact that God sent me bears witness to the fact that I really am who I say that I really am. I am the light of the world. It's obvious that this ambassador-type role bearing authority is completely lost on the Pharisees. Um, and they're not tracking with him. Verse 19 says, Then they said to him, Where is your father? Jesus answered, You know neither me nor my father. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. Again, he says, You don't know what you're talking about. You you." You're of a different world than I am. You don't know what you're talking about. Now their question, where is your father? Um, this is either showing their ignorance or um, their rudeness, their, their mockery. When they ask him, where is your father? They could be actually looking around saying, yeah, we asked for two witnesses. You're one. And okay, you mentioned your dad, but I don't see anyone. Where is he? You know, they could have been looking for Joseph, I suppose. Um, now, most Bible scholars believe that Joseph had died by this point. We don't see him show up anywhere in Jesus' adulthood in his ministry. And so if they knew that and they bring up his father, this might be a little rude too. And remember, there was a scandal around Jesus' birth. Uh, and it never really wore off. So in asking, where is your father? They very well could be referencing the illegitimacy of Jesus' birth. This could be a direct stab and a twist of a knife. But we know, we, we, it's very clear, that Jesus is talking about his heavenly Father. And they should know this too, since it had ruffled their feathers so much the first time that he brought it up. So it could be that they knew that Jesus was saying, God is my Father, but they were questioning the truth of the statement by saying, well, where is your Father? They're, they're, ask, they're saying something like, you know, if God is your Father, then let's hear from him. Where's the writing in the sky? Where are the angelic messengers? Show us a sign that we might believe in you. That's something that they say all over the place. And Jesus just answers, you don't know me. You don't know me. You don't know my Father. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. This too is something Jesus has been saying a lot of. He's repeat. He said this before. He's going to repeat it again. 
He doesn't come right out and say, don't you get it? My father is God, the maker of heaven and earth. He says, you don't get it. And you're never going to get it with that attitude. Really, unless they had come to Jesus in humility, they would never get to know the father of Jesus at all. He says, if you had known me, you would have known my father also. Now, Jesus' big claim at the beginning of the passage was what? It was, I am the light of the world. And they said, uh-uh, no, that's crazy. I don't believe you. Prove it. Well, do you ever need, do you walk into a room and ask people to prove whether the light is on or not? You know, you, you turn on all the lights and, and you, you know that it's light. You, you can see that the light is on. You don't ask for credentials or authenticity. You see the light. And, but th these people are still in the dark, and Jesus is saying, you don't know me. You, you don't see the light. You can't see the light. He says, I'm the light of the world, and there are people standing right in front of him, confessing, we're still in the dark. But it gets worse. And John told us that this was going to happen. He told us exactly what was going to happen. He describes how this happens every time. And he shows, it, shows us that this is not an isolated case, but rather the condition of the whole world that Jesus has come to. Listen to these words from chapter 1. John chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Now, isn't that exactly what's going on right here? And in John chapter 3, the other famous passage in John, we've already seen referencing, uh, we've already been referencing it this morning, John 3, 19. This is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world, and men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. Jesus said, you judge according to the flesh, the sinful flesh, the corrupted flesh. He says, you're making a decision based on these sins that you're not letting go of, that you're not confessing, that you're not repenting of. So of course you're not going to come to the light. You're not going to be able to see the light because you love your evil deeds. So when they say, where's your father? Where's God? I don't see God. And Jesus says, you, you can't see God because you're not coming to the light. He says, you don't know me and you can't know my father. If you had known me, you would have known my father. And then verse 20, it just wraps up the whole story with a note on the setting. These words Jesus spoke in the treasury, which the readers would have known, this is the place where the light is. This is the place where the lamp is where Israel could see that lamb and see, God has led us through the darkness. And Jesus stands up and says, I am the light of the world. I'm the one who leads you out of that darkness. So these words Jesus spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, and no one laid hands on him, for his hour had not yet come. And it, the treasury is the place, of course, where people would bring their best to God. It's where some of the tithes and the offerings would go. It was a place where people brought what they had to the Lord to worship. And when all this is going on, and Jesus is standing there saying, I'm the light, and it's my Father who gives me authority. I am the light of the world. I am God. 
In that moment, there are two people in the treasury who are bringing two kinds of gifts, almost like a Cain and Abel sort of scenario, two kinds of things to the Lord. Jesus was teaching me, teaching people, which means that there were those in this story that were listening. Maybe even some that could hear Jesus when he said, I am the light of the world, like John, who took that truth and then wrote it to the churches to encourage them in 1 John. And then there you know, there's those people that hear the light, that see the light, and they want more light. And then on the other hand, there were people like these Pharisees who come to the treasury, and what did they bring before God? They brought a bad attitude and a judging heart and condemnation. And they brought all of that and were blinded by their own darkness. Jesus has said, I am the light of the world. And then what we see is a kind of person who prefers darkness. Now, this is important for us, not only because we need to see that we still live in the same world that these Pharisees lived in. Um, this is the same kind of person that encounters the Word of God and responds in, in, in like kind. But also, we need to see this because we know that we have the same evil tendencies in our hearts. We sing, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. And it says men loved darkness, and there is the seed for that in your hearts. We desire the wrong things. And then, you know, we, we encounter the enemies of Jesus in this story, and we hear his words where he says, I'm not condemning you, but I'm not like you. We, we, we pray, let thy goodness, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee. God, let me see your light. Enlighten the eyes of our understanding that we might see these great things. Now let's pray. Jesus, light of the world, who has stepped down into darkness, we pray, open our eyes that we may see. Um, continue shining your light. Continue being the light that guides in the darkness and that leads us through every wilderness and into your promises. Bless your church, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.